namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasam Full moon of October marks the end of our range residence. In some of our monasteries, the custom is that each monk gives a 10 or 5 minute talk uh, and they go through the line, but I thought I'd forego that this time. I hope Sangha is not offended. <laughs> but if, if you want, we can, after I finish, you can each have a go. Uh, it's been a very good vasa for me, and uh, I'm very pleased to be with the bhikkhus and the had some terrific um, lay support. Um, Thomas is our stellar helper, and many lay people have been very helpful for us to uh, do a lot of things in, in this vasa um, and live and live our our monastic life. So there's much much to be grateful for and to commend uh, everyone for staying with this tradition staying with the, the Dhamma Vinaya and, and honoring the Buddha's teaching and, and hopefully obviously honoring your own aspiration and I think your own aspiration is realized through the ending of your own conflicts. If, if, if one's own inner conflicts aren't being resolved, then whatever abstract one takes about this path, whatever abstract view one has of it, the reality is still conflict hasn't been resolved. And if, but if conflict is being resolved, one's own inner suffering is really being addressed and, and uh, understood and, and liberated from the heart, then then the life is uh, more than worthy. One, one is really happy to, to practice this way, happy to be a, a bhikkhu or a, a lay person. So always, it comes down to that, I think, that, that we are answering our own questions. We come to this life with some, some sense of um, aspiration for uh, noble, noble results, uh, but also we come with our own inner conflicts and both of these are important. So there's that aspiring part of our hearts. Sometimes we realize that through meditation practices, sometimes just we have um, profound epiphanies which open the mind to, to possibilities we didn't realize. Um, so there's that kind of aspiration to a possibility, maybe from books or whatever. And there's also the... the, the uh, the dealing with one's conflict, the, the uh, insidious nature of greed, hatred, and delusion, which uh, infects our minds and, and causes us so much problem, and both I think are, for me, important. That I, you know, one has a sense of the, the possibility, and but also one sees the obstructions, and works with both of those. And if that isn't being answered, then of course there's a, there's a sort of great sense of disillusion with the life, with the teaching. And the way to 
do that is always to go back to kind of like why did why did I ordain? Why did I pick up this training? Uh, what is it about this life which is so significant to me? Uh, and am I am I really realizing uh, those? things which are important for me to realize am I letting go of the various aspects of my own ego suffering is that being is that dissipating is that going away from the mind is the mind more clear is the mind more compassionate is there more space uh, or is it just not working and these are questions which are perennial questions I get for all of us are always coming up so the teachings that somehow address that it can't just be a an abstract teaching of views and opinions that has to address that the very real um, n- nature of our suffering and the nature of our aspiration. And the craft and skill of a contemplative is to take the, the theory, the abstract, the uh, intellectual part and realize it in the heart, to, to bring it down into the reality of your own mind, your own suffering, your own conditioning. And that can't really be done for us. We have to do it ourselves. So we're presented with a teaching by teachers, by texts, MP3s, uh, various ways, and then we have to make it our own. We have to claim it, and we claim it through the contemplative life of, of looking at suffering and the end of suffering. I was This morning I was reflecting with a bhikkhus, the, just the... Um, one of the things that came up for me a lot this retreat was the in community the 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 juxtaposition of conformity and tolerance that you know, because we we uh, we live by a rule we live by a convention which requires quite a lot of conformity um, which is much much different than some of the things which are praised in society of being uh, strong individual, um, being very creative and being a nonconformist. So sometimes the the people in our culture that get really a lot of attention are the more eccentric types, artists or um, beings who express themselves in very eccentric ways, whether it's a rock star or whatever, and, and they get praised and so on. But conformity that probably gets talked about less and uh, in my day conformity when I grew up in the 70s, 60s 60s, uh, conformity was like it wasn't a good word like individuality, express yourself so then we come to this form and we're asked to, to give up a lot and to, to try to conform to a, a, a way of living which the Buddha has recommended which are Elders have recommended for, to us from from Thailand and England and so on, and then um, we're asked to all surrender to that, to give ourselves to that, and that makes community possible. It makes uh, our own uh, path easier because there are various recommendations for restraint, sense restraint, um, way of relating to each other, which are compassionate rather than competitive. Uh, ways of using resources which are corporate rather than individual, and so on and so forth. So there, there are a lot of, obviously there's a lot of advantages to living in a way of, of, of conformity. But the conformity can't come from just fear. 
It can't just come from being coerced into living a certain pattern because that will not really liberate you. It'll only make you a conformist. Um, on the other hand, just being rebellious or non-conformist, that also won't work because the community will eventually not tolerate that or not want that or, or there'll be no community. And yet, all of us, um, there are limits to our capacity to conform. Uh, and so sometimes our sense of, well, I don't really want to conform to this, is grounded in, in not just childishness, but very real considerations and personal considerations and so on. So then you have tolerance. Tolerance is, is uh, as I was saying this morning to the bhikkhus, all of us have a, a a slightly different view of this life, even though our rules are the same and we have the same outfits. I think our, our take on what this life is about, how to live it, is all it's nuanced, it's different for each of us. And so tolerance is that capacity to see, yeah, that there's other ways to interpret this. It's not just one way. Uh, and there's individual... Um, proclivities, individual character, individual karma going on at different times with different people. And so the, the capacity to, to ask for conformity, but also to be tolerant, to be tolerant to differences, to be able to, to listen to each other and to hear those differences and to not just try to uh, dominate someone with one's own preferences. That's, that's a skill which keeps community going. So there's also intolerance, and as, as, as we know, if someone, say, um, say our Parajika rules, if someone were to embezzle $200 from the petty cash box, then that we would not, be, we would not tolerate that, and the person would have to leave the monastery they disrobe. So intolerance has a place, too. Intolerance has, has its place. But the swinging between these two, like... Conformity, non-conformity, tolerance, intolerance, these are things which are not defined by our vinaya. I think they're defined more by our, our own awareness of where we're coming from. And that, that is very important to see where we're coming from in living, in living this communal life, living by a set of rules and principles which are not, they're not... Uh, creation of any individual that come to us from the Buddha and from a tradition of elders. So something we can give up to, it's very, very useful. And so I was pondering this morning to the bhikkhus, the, you know, what, are the, what are the relative um, factors which allow for good communication and, and, and good community and a way of bridging this, this sometimes difficult um, conflict of of accommodating each other in our different views and yet uh, accommodating the Vinaya, living, living by those principles. And so the, I was reflecting on the three fetters and those are ways of talking about how to bring the mind to a state of letting go, of, of, to a state where our karma begins to be released from, from consciousness rather than being always reinforced through greed, hatred, and delusion. And so Sakaya Ditti, the, the first fetter, is that, that insidious self-voice in our minds which always creates a me and a you. 
in various ways. And it can be uh, self-criticism, self-disparagement, it can be judgment of others, uh, it can be fantasizing about things. It comes up in all kinds of ways, but its sign, of course, is a strong sense of me. It's not just uh, greed, per se. It's me and a narrative of greed. It's not just anger, per se. It's me and a narrative of anger. It's not just uh, feeling um, uh, rebellious, but it's me in my rebellious mode. Uh, it's not just fearfulness, but it's me being very, very fearful. It's the me. And that is the kind of, uh, as long as that is not seen as an object, then we are perpetually the subjects of our own narratives, and there's no way out, because there's no Dhamma there. There's only self. And this is uh, crucial, crucial to understanding Buddhist practice. You say, Abhijapachaya Sankara, with ignorance is conditioned, there are these compounded things. And these compounded things, when they're imbued with ignorance, are always preoccupying our minds, enslaving our minds, and the chance to free the mind from that preoccupation so it can realize transcendence, realization, realize the deep peace, so the island, the refuge, and Nibbana, these kinds of things that that's not given to us because our minds are preoccupied with self-view. So if we look at our thinking patterns, how much of the thinking patterns is about me? Me, me, me. How much of it is just objective thinking about what needs to be done, about uh, just the functionality of thinking as opposed to narrative thinking, always me and my memories and my future problems and my resentments and my fears and... Uh, and so on and so forth. And that, there's a couple of lovely words in the Pali, ahankara mimankara, I making, my making. Very nice words. Ahankara mimankara, this kind of constant uh, proliferation and production and creation of a sense of a me. And that that really is, is a fetter, it's a shackle, it's a, it prevents us from seeing Dhamma. Seeing the Dhamma of greed is not denied its existence, but it's seeing it just as a, a phenomena which comes into the mind. Being caught in the narrative of greed is not seeing it. It's just lost in it. So as long as Sakaya is operating, uh, then there will always be, that ignorance will always condition suffering, old age, sickness and death. But that's very primary to constantly, and, and fortunately in, say, in modern psychology, there's, there's a sort of tendency to, to point to that, say, don't, don't go to the narrative, feel the body. That's a kind of common way of describing that. Um, the way we perpetuate the narrative quite often comes from very good intentions. Maybe uh, we'll feel, um, you know, we'll maybe be agitated and we'll say something to someone which is uh, unkind. And then we'll go back to our uh, place of uh, meditation or our own kuti or our home. And then we'll have a memory of that having said something unpleasant. And then we'll pick up that memory and then we'll run with it with Sakaya Ditti shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that, they shouldn't have done that, I shouldn't have done that. And that is just perpetuation of the same problem. It's still Sakaya Ditti. Remorse is good. Remorse is good. But remorse isn't uh, a narrative. Remorse is more like noticing cause and effect. Ah, if I do this, I get that. So be careful. I won't do that. That's that's healthy. It's not imbued with a whole narrative of self-view. So this is what we have to watch. We have to really uh, become very attentive to the narratives and the self-views and somehow, somehow develop a, a means of not believing in that and yet 
realizing that these self-narratives can be driven by quite strong emotions, fears and desires and greed. The energies can be quite strong, so the thinking mind is not um, just coming from no impulse, it's coming from strong impulses, but to to liberate those impulses, what we need to do, we have to let go of the thinking and see the moods of the mind as they are very directly, rather than being caught in the narratives. Siddhavata Paramasa, belief in rites and rituals, is, is um, usually it's translated as a superstition, but deeper than that, it's, it's attachment to all the kind of uh, cultural norms that we find. So I was saying to the monks, I quite often find that monks visiting from bigger monasteries usually tell me how they do it in their monasteries. And I always chuckle because different monasteries do it differently. So if one attaches to how it's done in a different monastery or how it's done in the texts or how it's done by another teacher and so on, it's fine to kind of reflect on that. But when that's an attachment, it becomes, it can become quite um, domineering, it can become um, divisive, but also it's oftentimes imbued with fear. This is what superstition is. It's a way of escaping from fear. So one finds security in a, in a kind of a viewpoint, in a, um, uh, in a kind of position. This is the way it must be. Um, but to actually to see that one has taken a position on this and to disagree is fine. But if it's imbued with fear, then the fear will never be liberated from the heart. And, and human beings have this strong, strong tendency to attach to views, ditupadana, very strong. And um, that gives a certain power to the mind. Someone who has very strong opinions can have a lot of strength and power in a social situation. But if it's still coming from sakayaditi, a self-view, then the result is always going to be a, a fearful mind mind which is not really liberated from fear because it needs to always have a position. We see this, we see this in, like uh, I've been reading um, Margaret Macmillan's uh, Massey lectures where she's talking about people in history and she's describing in one chapter, interesting chapter, Woodrow Wilson, Margaret Thatcher, Hitler and Stalin. <laughs> she puts all together and the first two she just describes people who were bounded by um, democratic conventions and the last two Hitler and Stalin could just do as they wanted but both suffered from hubris they attached to strong strong views and Margaret Thatcher then you know attached to her own infallibility and eventually her own party kicked her out she couldn't understand that and so this this sense of uh, attaching to views could often points to that, that the fallacy of that, that viewpoints are simply viewpoints. Not that we don't have views, not that we don't have a vinay, that we don't have the Dhamma, but when, when there's attachment to views, it's a species of sakaiditi, and quite often be a way of not looking at fear. When fear comes up into the mind, then it's very important to know fear as as an energy, as a, as a type of a sankhara, as a, as a formation. And if that fear is not um, allowed to become conscious, seen as an ichadukanata, then it gets recycled through the attachment to views. 
so so this this uh, the cultural views that we have can be can be very strong and very hidden racism um, sexism um, all manner of things can can be uh, imbued with that wrong view so ditupadana sakayaditi attachment to views silabhataparamasa they're all revolving around a mind which does not see sankaras as sankaras the third fetter of doubt this also you know to 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 have absolute absolute confidence that that which has the nature to arise has the nature to cease is a very liberating uh, attitude and insight um, but again i think i think doubt and fear are very very much related so if a person then um, has 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 doubt and cannot see doubt and fear as a condition that arises and ceases, they grasp a position, they grasp a, an idea, uh, and they take refuge in the idea, which seems okay, but then it never liberates fear because it's still driven by fear and doubt. So to actually know doubt itself as an ichadukanata, as a condition which arises and ceases, and be absolutely confident that that's what it is, that's all it is, frees you from the need to take a position, frees one from this horrible kind of fundamentalism that religions get into. You don't need, one doesn't need to do that. I remember once and I was uh, walking with Tancho Kun Panyananda across a field in Christchurch in, in New Zealand. Tancho Kun Panyananda is a beautiful, beautiful uh, monk. He's since passed away. And very open and, and uh, going across the field. It was a Sunday and Three Kiwis came running up to us, and Tanjakun Panyananda was uh, very open and compassionate. And all of a sudden, they started to bash him with a Bible, basically telling that he was a, a foolish person and that he'll go to hell. <laughs> lovely, lovely, beautiful kind of communication. Thank you very much. <laughs> and this is, of course, the extreme of attachment to views, where, where, where human beings just become so so um, frothing and, and uh, insensitive to the way things are. So sensitivity is, 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 is different, isn't it? Insensitivity comes from empathy. You know, empathy isn't a kind of uh, intellectual position. Empathy listens. Empathy sees. Empathy hears. Empathy knows. And, and so those hard qualities that, that we are recommended to develop, generosity and Compassion and, and forgiveness and kindness—they're not—they're not just sentimental aspects, but they're the heart which is not grasping. They're the heart which isn't, isn't domineering and uh, grasping positions, but it's actually open to the flux and change, and open to other ways of seeing things. Which doesn't mean we just agree with each other. We show yeah, there are other perspectives—my perspective, your perspective—and then we try to honor that which liberates the heart. Um, so I think, I think for me, I think that uh, that 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 when these three, uh, when these three are held, Sakayaditi is held, Siddhavata uh, Paramasa, this, this attachment to cultural things, um, the inability to to look at doubt as just a sankara, uh, and to have actually to be absolutely confident that, that which has a nature to arise has a nature to cease. When when those three fetters are operating. I, I do think that they're very much covering up fear. 
it's a good, you know, it's a way of uh, of not really recognizing fear. So when fear comes up into the mind, if there is no attachment to a narrative, if there is no need to take intellectual position to re- to fall back into intellectualism, if there is absolute confidence that fear is simply a sankara, it arises and ceases, then fear begins to dissipate and go away from consciousness. And so we have the other two, the next two fetters in this list of ten fetters. It's written, the translation is the attenuation of greed and hatred. And I would say fear too, because attenuation, I think the translation is lessening of, the falling away of, the going away from the mind. And how do these things go away from the mind? Well, they come into the mind because of uh, of habit, karmic habit, you know, the the intentionality we make creates karmic results. So the amount of greed, hatred, and delusion which I experience now is the result, is the accumulated result of my intentions. So if I've always functioned from, uh, like if I've always functioned from uh, a strong opinions because I'm a fearful person, then eventually if I want to look at that fear, I'm going to have to notice it let go of that false refuge and it will come up into my mind. But if I know it then, free from the three fetters, free from the, 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 the personality view, free from needing to have some position to find security, free from doubt that this is just a sankara, then its karmic nature might be quite strong because of intentions in the past, but now, now its energy will not be fueled because there's no attachment. This is non-attachment. This is non-grasping. Non-grasping does not mean that these things don't come up. They come up according to their, to their um, energies that that have been put into it. But now, now they are simply seen as sankharas, anicca dukkhanat, and it's utter confidence that that's the way it is. And then, the fuel for that dies away. There's the, the the cooling of the mind from greed, hatred, and fear. So greed comes up. It's just known as greed. It's not followed or indulged in or, or repressed or analyzed or anything about it. It's just simply an ichadukarata and hatred and fear. And so the, the heart begins to be attenuated or, or liberated from these deluding energies. And you can see that if, if they come up and there is always the grasping of a self-view, they're never going to cease because that very grasping of a self-view is the fueling. It's the adding to, it's the making of the fire stronger, and and fear, and, and any kinds of greed. To sit in the middle of that, to sit in the middle of, uh, of unfulfilled uh, desire, to sit in the middle of, of uh, anger, and simply know it is, is, the, is the work of someone who understands the fetters, and totally trusts, totally trusts, in the way of anicca in the way of karma working its way out. No longer the need to think that one is the author of all this, that I'm somehow the author and I have to get rid of it. No, it's just nature. It's nature and change. And that perspective in itself is a great liberation, but it begins to facilitate these things falling away from the mind. And as these things fall away from the mind, the mind just has naturally more clarity, uh, more happiness, and more freedom, and the capacity to to take more uh, subtle investigation of the nature of consciousness, to to, to apply attention in more subtle, constant, uh, um, clear ways becomes facilitated because now the mind isn't preoccupied with those things. 
So the three fetters are very, very, very kind of interesting ways of, of contemplating the the conditioned phenomena that arise in consciousness. So often we're just caught by the content, and the content creates the narrative. So we're caught by the angers and fears and resentments and self-disparagement and 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 all the rest of it. And, and we don't, oftentimes we don't remember the Dharma. This is remembering the Dharma. And the Dharma is a kind of stepping outside of the narrative and to see this this is a, this is simply a phenomena which has arisen and has passed away um, the passing away sometimes takes um, fortitude and trust and, and, and clarity but once once one sees that so what else how else could it be and then then the tendency to to like attach to culture or or or, or um, be very very um, unable to adapt to different kinds of situations that falls away because one one has that kind of freedom of the heart it's not dependent on a particular social structure or dependent on a particular way of doing things one one is not not bound by fear not bound by these things not by, bound by psychiatry to know fear is fear then um, to to be able to uh, no fear before it runs off into worry. To no fear before it runs off into thinking about the future. This is difficult. This is difficult because fear and anxiety and those kinds of things condition the mind to think in fearful ways. And that seems more comfortable. It seems much more comfortable to worry than to face the fact the future is unknown. And worry is different than planning. Planning can be very, is necessary. Planning is very skillful. But just to know to know that you don't know, and to feel the discomfort of that, and to um, bear witness to that, opens the mind to the silence of the mind. To, to, to not need an answer for everything, to not always need an analytical position to take, frees the mind from intellect, from the constant uh, uh, intellectualizing of our, of our experience, to something quite, quite simple. Um, quite simple uh, and direct, that that which has a nature to arise as the nature to cease. And these are teachings that we're constantly being reminded of. And the challenge is the, again, as I said earlier, the implementation. How can I um, now inch, you know, in, perceive life or interpret life through an Ichidukanata rather than through Sakayaditi, the positions I've taken, the mental structures which I've built up, which I think are, are, are ultimate truth. All mental structures are just mental structures. All emotions are just emotions, they arise and they cease. And, and abiding in that Buddha-knowing Dharma is what we mean by refuge. And when we awaken to this movement in the mind as something that's beginning and ending, we begin to incline to that which is non-grasping. Non-grasping, and that, that is the island, non-grasping. That's where the peace lies. So I'll leave that for your reflection tonight. Annamiyang tamakata satukaram tatamase Sadu, Sadu, Sadu.